0: Please stick around and let me bend your ear for a few minutes. It just might feel a little better on the other side. Hello there. This is Dee, and welcome to episode 10 of the Benzo Free Podcast. Wow. This is our 10th episode. <laughs> That's sweet. That is pretty cool. I am really stoked about what we are doing here. And and yes, even though it's just me on this side of the microphone, this is truly a group venture. Without your feedback and input, I wouldn't have half this show or all this show for that matter, so please keep it coming. You know, I've been I've been doing pretty well lately, actually. Working on this podcast, it it keeps me quite busy. It's been really busy lately, but it's good. Busy busy is good. You know, in fact, it got me thinking about a few things. I, I I remember an old adage my dad used to teach me, and that was, work is a blessing. You know, as a kid, that was perhaps the most stupid thing I'd ever heard. <laughs> but, But with age comes wisdom. Well, <laughs> Maybe not, but, you know, I'm going to stick to it and I'm going to pretend that with age comes wisdom. You see, during benzo withdrawal, our minds become filled with enemies, uh, ninja warriors, imagine, waiting in the crevices of our brains, ready to pounce on the least little sign of weakness. A, A thought, a suggestion, a sound, a smell, a cry, a complaint, anything Any trigger can release the ninja's vicious attack. And what do they attack? Inner peace. They hate inner peace. It's it's their mortal enemy. And they will stop at nothing to destroy it. Instead, they will tell you lies. They whisper to you, life is hopeless. And you get really sad. Or Life is unfair and and you get mad. Or life is pain and you get scared. And most of all, they tell you that this pain, these thoughts, these symptoms will never go away. That this is permanent and you'll never get better over and over and over again. They whisper this into the recesses of your mind. These are all lies. But the ninjas are so sly, they convince you it's all true. But work? Oh, the ninjas don't like a brain that is working. Their whispers wither away. They lose their control. You know, it can be hard to work while in withdrawal. We all know that. But, but if you can do so, it's, it's good to work when you can and work can be anything, your job, doing taxes, cleaning the house, reading to your son, prepping for your podcast, anything that occupies your mind, even for a little while, gives it a rest from those damn ninjas. <laughs> Just today, the ninjas came back for me. You know, I have triggers. <laughs> yeah, big surprise, right? Every one of us has triggers. And some days I feel very strong. And I know I can handle the ninjas. And then the trigger comes and whoosh, the ninjas take control. And I listen to their lies and I believe them again. But then I go to my desk and I work on the podcast. Or even better, I get some new feedback from from one of you. Someone tells me how the podcast helped them or or what their struggles are or, or wants to know where to get help. And I write back to you. And slowly, the ninja's voices fade. Benzo withdrawal is a temporary condition. I'm going to say that again. Benzo withdrawal is a temporary condition. Please, don't let the ninjas convince you otherwise. So today we have, we have made a small adjustment to our format. Like, like I said, we are continually changing things to improve, or at least I hope they're improvements. So today we're going to start off with our intro and mailbag, which we always do. Then we're going to go to our Benzo News section, but we're going to shorten that up a little bit, I think. Well, instead, I think we're just going to provide some teasers, very high-level highlights of what we've covered in the week. And then next, we're going to try out a new section called Benzo Spotlight. And in this section, we're going to briefly spotlight one organization, film, event, video, you know, legislative effort. What we're going to provide is anything which might be of interest or use to our listeners. And then we're going to move on with our format, go to our Benzo stories, and then our feature topic. And we have our very first interview. Yay! It is with Elizabeth McCarthy. And Liz is a benzo survivor from 10 milligrams of clonopin. But she is also a psychotherapist who often works with benzo patients. And she is on the medical advisory board of the Benzodiazepine Information Coalition. She has been working on raising awareness, helping patients, helping her own self recover. She has been very involved in the benzo community for several years. So please stay tuned for the interview. Liz provides some great insights as both a patient and a counselor, and I think you're really going to enjoy it. And that wraps up our intro, right after a couple quick things. You didn't think I'd forget this part, did you? We need feedback. I say this every time, but I truly mean it. I read every comment, question, or story submitted and reply to each one. This isn't just a slogan I really want to hear from you. As I said earlier, it's the feedback from each one of you that keeps me going. So please, tell me what you think. I would love to hear from you. You can you can comment on this episode, or even better, you can visit our feedback form at benzofree.org/feedback. You can also email me at podcast@benzofree.org, at and just send me your questions, comments, interests, changes, whatever you have. I want to hear it. And by the way, don't forget sign up for our mailing list at benzofree.org/slash subscribe. And One last thing, of course, before we move on, the Benzo-Free Podcast is for informational purposes only and should never be considered medical advice. The views and opinions expressed by our listeners and interview guests on this podcast, whether read from textual submissions or presented in their own voice, do not necessarily reflect those of the Benzo-Free Podcast or of its host. Got that? Good. Let's move on. This one is from Jurg in Bern, Switzerland. Now, I hope I pronounced that right. I, It also might be Jurg, depending on the country of origin of the name, <laughs> but I'm going to stick with Jurg, since it is the German pronunciation that I looked up, and I truly apologize if I'm wrong. Please let me know this, okay? Anyway, he says, quote, I am the caregiver of my wife, Ruth. She is 22 months off benzos, but still on A.D., She has been poly-drugged by doctors and is still suffering. I really appreciate your great work with BenzoFree.org. I have a shy suggestion. Could you create a list of people concerned by benzo withdrawal? Sorted by country or state? This would be great. I am looking for German-speaking people who are in or went through a benzo withdrawal. I already found Beatrice from Zurich. We both were participating in a workshop from Jennifer Lee. She will send you her story. We need your help to create a network of benzo victims in German-speaking and all other countries. My wife does not speak English. For her, it is difficult to get any information about benzos. Thank you in advance. Be blessed and kind regards. Jörg. I just want to let everybody know that Beatrice's story, which she refers to in this comment, I will be sharing that in the next episode, in case you were wondering. So that's coming up. As Yg said in his comment, "It's not just doctors who are needed, but people in different languages who have been through this. I can't imagine how, you know is- isolating it is not to have someone or some group in your native tongue to share with and learn from. This is a true need, and I'm glad you brought that up. First off, since I hate to recreate the wheel, I need to ask our listeners. If anyone knows of a listing like this on the web, if you do, please let me know, and I'll share it on the podcast and website. Or, or if anyone listening speaks German and can help, please let me know, and I, I might be able to put you in contact with them. But but as for the long-term solution, this just might be someplace where Bensofree could help out. I, I can't make any promises, but I'm going to start looking into this, since Since I have a background in database programming, setting up an international benzo contact list might be an area where we could provide benefit. I know there are a lot of discussion boards and a lot of information sites and wonderful things out there, but I really don't know what exists in different languages and in different countries. And it would sure be nice if there was one location where everybody could go to and to find that information. So, So please let me know what you think about this idea as the listener and provide any suggestions you have. I really want your input on this. And if we move forward and start developing it, I'd like to know what you might think it should look like. So I'd love to hear from you. Thanks. And and thanks, Jurg, for your comment. I really appreciate you sharing. And that brings us to the Benzo news. Um, Here are the highlights of the week. We're going to keep this very abbreviated, like I mentioned in the intro. On Friday, we reposted an article by Dr. Christy Huff about her personal struggles with Xanax. She, she provided some solid resources for the patient. It's, it's worth taking a look at that one. On Sunday, I wrote a post about WBAD, um, where I encouraged people to think about either joining or even better, helping to start planning an event for World Benzodiazepine Awareness Day, which is on July 11th, just four months away. On Monday, the Benzofree Facebook page reached 1,000 likes. That was cool. (laughs) Thanks for all your help on that one. Also on Monday, we reposted an article from the Harvard Medical School, which listed 10 proven tips to sleep better at night. And on Tuesday, we reposted a blog post from the BIC titled, 10 Things Uninformed Benzodiazepine Prescribers Do. Now all of these news items can be found on our Facebook page at facebook.com/benzofree, and of course I have put links to each one in our show notes. And just in case you might think that we have been ignoring our own benzofree blog, <laughs> um, well, you're you're right actually. <laughs> uh, I have to admit I just haven't had the time to write any blog posts lately. The podcast, updating the website, and um corresponding with the listeners have taken all my time lately. But still, I really hope to remedy that soon and start releasing at least a couple of blog posts each week. In fact, I might even be getting some help in that area from some of our listeners who have offered to help out as contributing writers. If this sounds like something you'd like to do, let me know. Today's spotlight shines its light on benzo information sites. There are hundreds, even thousands of support sites and groups for benzo all around the world, or at least I thought there were. I assume there are. I'm just starting to uncover them, but I found some amazing ones in the process. Now, many of you have heard me talk plenty about um, the Benzodiazepine Information Coalition, BIC, or World Benzodiazepine Awareness Day, (WBad) or perhaps you have chatted on benzo buddies the largest online forum or, or even visited benzo.org.uk where they host the ashton manual i've talked and or highlighted each one of these groups at different times on the website facebook page or podcast and they are some amazing resources in fact i've put links to each of these in our show notes and they are also on the bottom of every page of the benzo free website right now but this is just the tip of the iceberg And part of my job at Benzofree is to help find new stuff. And that is what I have today. I was researching a new one this week. Well, at least it was a new one for me. It's been around for a couple of years. So some of you may have already checked it out. It's called the Alliance for Benzodiazepine Best Practices, and it can be found at benzoreform.org. This group formed out of TIBS. um, That stands for the International Benzodiazepine Symposium. Uh, This was a symposium focused on raising awareness and improving education on benzodiazepines and Z drugs within the medical community, and it took place in Bend, Oregon back in 2017. There's a lot of wonderful information on this website, both for the patient and medical professional including a very interesting video from the 2017 TIB Symposium, which you can access from the homepage. So please, check them out. Much like the BIC, WBAD, and others, they are all doing wonderful work and need our support. And please, send me resources which you have found helpful. I've received a few of them and I'm researching them now, and we'll be covering some of those in upcoming episodes. Which then brings us to benzo stories. Now, Now, I told you we would have some international stories coming up, and we do. But due to the length of today's interview, I I pushed back a couple of them to later episodes. But today, I needed something very short since we have an interview as our feature. And guess what? Ask and you shall receive. So here is a short one-paragraph story and comment from Terry in Hot Springs, Arkansas. And yes, I know what you are thinking. (laughs) I have been to Hot Springs a couple of times. In fact, my grandparents used to live in southern Missouri in in Ozark country, not too far north of Hot Springs. I I used to visit them often and learned how to fish with my grandpa and, and ski with some friends we had down there on Table Rock Lake. The country around Hot Springs and Ozark country is just breathtaking in my mind. Rolling hills, lots of trees, amazing crafts, incredible bluegrass music, wonderful down-home cooking. Part of me will always belong to Ozark country. It's part of my childhood, and I'm pretty fond of the area. But enough about that. Let's hear from Terry. Terry says, quote, I wanted to share a piece of my story. I am 17 months benzo-free off Klonopin. It has been the hardest thing I have ever done. I have had numerous symptoms, most along the vagus nerve corridor. Panic attacks, heart palps, gastro issues, issues that I liken to a chemical stroke. I have lost bowel control and hardly been able to stand and walk. Probably most distressing has been sleeping issues such as central sleep apnea. I have been encouraged by your podcast. I have been searching for a reassuring voice and you have provided one. Keep up the great work. End quote. Thanks, Terry. I'm so sorry you had to go through this. You are healing and you're going to continue to heal. Please, you know, take care of yourself and, and definitely keep in touch. We We really want to know how you're doing. And for the rest of you, don't forget, I still need stories. Um, long ones, short ones, whatever you have, they are integral to this podcast, and I really want to hear from you, so please send them in. And thanks again to all those who have shared. We are honored and grateful. And that brings us to our feature. Today we have our first interview. That is is—that is pretty nice. Our guest today is Elizabeth McCarthy, and she was generous enough of her time to talk with us, so I recorded this interview with her um, this past Saturday on March 16th. Since this is a phone interview, my voice will sound the same as I do in the studio because, well, I get to speak into the studio microphone and the phone at the same time. Unfortunately, our guest voice will sound like it is recorded over the phone because, well, it is. (laughs) So I did some cleaning up of the audio, but it will still sound like a phone call, and I will keep working on things that I can do to help improve that over time. So, enough about that. Let's learn about Liz. Elizabeth McCarthy is in private practice as a psychotherapist in Royal Oak, Michigan. Her primary areas of clinical work focus on attachment and trauma, and psychiatric drug withdrawal and recovery. Before completing a year of postgraduate study in mental health, Liz earned her master's degree in counseling from Oakland University in Rochester, Michigan. She previously studied at Edinburgh University of Pennsylvania, where she completed a master's degree in fine arts. Liz brings a wealth of knowledge and experience, both personal and professional, to the issues surrounding psychiatric drugs and the significant problems that can be encountered when taken for even a short period of time. Owing to her own experience of benzodiazepine withdrawal, Liz first became involved in supporting and educating individuals across the globe as a moderator for an online benzodiazepine peer support group in 2006. It was through that experience that Liz became an ardent participant in furthering awareness and education about the complex problems associated with benzodiazepine use and discontinuation and developing a foundational understanding such that one is more able to make conscious, informed decisions about their own health and well-being. So, let's join the interview. Liz, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Dave. Thanks so much for having me.
0: It's my pleasure. I'm so glad that you came on. And um, as I mentioned to you before we started this, that you are my first interview guest on this show. So, thank you so much for agreeing to do this.
1: Well, I feel honored.
0: I thought maybe we'd just start out real quick with you telling me a little bit about your current position and um, what kind of work you do now. I know we mentioned your bio, but maybe you could elaborate on that just a little bit.
1: Well, um, uh, as you mentioned in my bio, I am in private practice and have been since 2009. I work with whatever comes into my office, basically, but it often harks back to early trauma um and it's remarkable how uh many people also come in experiencing problems due to the medications that they're on.
0: Yeah, it sounds unknowingly like it.
1: unknowingly. Yeah.
0: I said you have a lot of experience counseling patients with like chronic anxiety. Have have you seen this increasing lately?
1: I think uh, uh yes, uh oh, in 2016 absolutely. Okay. There was quite an uptick in um, just uh, from a social-political standpoint, uh, um, things were quite intense and people were quite worried. understand. And I think that they still are. Um, so I care that less and less. It's more just a, a, a trepidation about their own lives. Okay. It's interesting how that's faded.
0: That is interesting. Um, maybe we should open up with just your personal experience. I understand that you've had direct experience with benzodiazepines in your in your life? Yes. Can you tell me a little bit about that?
1: Um, I was in a very severe car accident, head-on collision. Okay. Um, and was initially put on clonopin. I think it was 1990. And uh, at the time, I was also on a lot of uh, narcotic painkillers um uh, but the clonopin was absolutely my fluay into psychiatry, and i that started out with two milligrams, straight out two yeah. milligrams of clonopin
0: I'm familiar with that that was my drug too, and two milligrams was my top that I was on
1: uh ten was my top
0: oh my gosh, mm
1: hmm so in 2006, uh, uh, in preparation for um, uh, a, a change in, in treatment direction, they had me go off uh, uh, Klonopin, 10 milligrams of Klonopin, cold turkey.
0: You're kidding. Cold turkey?
1: With, Yeah. No education, no preparation whatsoever. Sent me home alone, told me to stop the drug.
0: How did you get through that?
1: Um, it was a, a, a terrifying experience. And, um, I think that, you know, we, we all, each of us finds a way to get through this. And, um, I found as kind of my guiding light was an experience my brother had shared with me. Okay. And, and something quite horrific that he had gone through. And I just held that in front of myself. He said, if you could do it, I could do this.
0: That's good to have somebody to, to lead the way.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, so at the time, I was uh, quite isolated and uh, socially isolated, and um, I was in such a state that I couldn't even push the button on my computer to turn it on. Mm. And so for eight months, I sat in the dark. Well, uh, I did, to be fair, I did learn along the way that I was in quote-unquote dental withdrawal mm-hmm. uh, and and uh, that what I was experiencing was normal given the circumstances. That The severity of the withdrawal was abs- what I would, I can describe it in a word, it was violent. Yeah. I was thrown into this very extreme state for... About eight months. And then one day it just, uh, everything just kind of calmed down. Now, when I say everything calmed down, uh, um, for three years I walked around with uh, uh, sunglasses and earplugs in my ears um, because they, I had such an intolerance for uh, light and sound and touch and taste and smell and that kind of thing. Right. It was my body still uh, was in a state of hyper arousal. Um, it was that more extreme, uh, hallucinating, um, just utter terror to to leave my home, to go out into the community. That when I say things settle down, that's what I'm talking about.
0: Yeah. How, how long how long have you now been off the the drug?
1: Um, six, 13 years.
0: 13 years. Do yeah, Do you, do you still years. have any lingering, protracted symptoms?
1: Um. Yes, it, but it's not anything that 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 uh, interrupts my life. Okay. And it's tolerable. Um. Um. I I still have heart palpitations, uh, surges of adrenaline or cortisol. Um, that just come out of nowhere. And uh, over the years, I think I've become quite adept at just kind of managing that or being with it, really, understanding where it comes from, knowing that it's temporary and that it's going to stop. Right. So uh, when I was able to actually turn on my computer, the first thing that I did was Google benzodiazepine withdrawal and learned that there was this whole community out there uh, who were talking about and describing my very experience Mm -hmm. and it was just stunning to me I was excited I was horrified Um, but you know it's when you find your tribe it feels really really good
0: that is true that is true I must agree with you there when you um, I know you were still probably in some protracted state at the time when you decided to go back to school how did you handle all that
1: um it was it was a goal that I had uh uh in my mind for a very long time, and that I just decided it was it was time to do it oh God um it was very difficult at times uh, uh, as you and others who might be listening um, can attest to your cognitive ability tends to. Uh, rise and fall mm-hmm. and at times uh, just not even be able to, uh, not being able to take in any information whatsoever um almost like it, it, there's just it it's, it goes further than kind of this brain fog that people often talk about and it's almost like there's a wall there and nothing can come in right and so i experienced that in grad school quite a bit and okay. and um, so I just, uh, I man, somehow I managed.
0: <laughs> I, I find that, ad, I find that admirable because I've, I've thought about going back and getting some additional training, even college, but I had the same problem with, with the, with a brain fog and with that wall. I just don't yeah. know that I can memorize anything right now. I'm, I'm hoping I will soon, but and maybe by your lead, I might have some some in, some encouragement to actually go do that. But yeah, it's hard for me to learn new things at this point.
1: I think it also helped that I had a um, uh, a very deep passion mm-hmm. for this this area of study, and um, I think through my own personal experience. Uh, gained an even deeper appreciation for this kind of work and uh, so um, I think that it was a it was a good decision it is I feel well matched for what I'm doing in fact uh, I've never felt better matched to anything in my life
0: that's wonderful I'm glad you found a purpose out of all this that's I think we're both in the same boat where we we both have found a purpose through this experience and and made made it what could have been the you know which was the maybe the most horrible experience of our lives but turned it into something for good and and I admire that. I'm I'm mm-hmm. really happy you've done that with your life. Um how how has this experience and let's move into your counseling a little bit. I understand you've worked with several patients who have dealt with different prescription drug issues including a lot of benzodiazepines. What have you seen? How, what kind of things do you see come through? How have you learned to work with, with different patients that are suffering from this?
1: As with any client who walks into my office, I meet them where they are. Okay. try to understand um, uh, in a, as nuanced way as I possibly can what they're going through and to help normalize that. Put it, give, it, give it context.
0: Right, so treating the patient as a whole instead of just seeing the issue? Yeah. is Yes, okay. That, that's great. What, what have you seen primarily? What has been the, the primary complaints or people who have come through or what type of oh issues have you faced?
1: Uh, it's as varied as you can possibly imagine. Okay. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm guessing that, that you and those uh, who may be listening have read a multitude of stories from people who have been through this experience and how they arrive on the drug, um, the the years of struggle and and invalidation that they receive from the medical community, um, and how they come to learn that it's the drug causing the problem. Those are um, the constants that I see, that I hear. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, details of how people arrive on the drug, of course, differ.
0: I noticed one thing. One of the things I, I, of course, you have seen and I have seen too um, quite prevalently is just people looking for help and needing help from doctors, from therapists, and not finding it. Um, I looked when I was doing some research for this interview on WBAD, on World Benzodiazepine Awareness Day's website. And it has listed on there um, in-person benzo-wise therapists, and you're the only person listed in that list. And I think this is a perfect example of um, how hard it is for us, for people out there to find support, whether it be counseling or whether it be physicians. What can we do to try to get more people on this list so people all around the world can find support?
1: Therein lies that's a problem because <laughs> I, I i personally don't know uh any therapists who are knowledgeable about this okay I'm guessing they are out there
0: there's got to be somebody i but how do how you know, how do you find them is the question
1: well uh people have found me in various True. ways uh through word of mouth or the internet um some of the online forums, some will, you know, uh, my name will pop up here and there. Right. Um, and I also uh, have a, my profile in various spots, and I list the fact that I work in this area. Uh, it's a desert.
0: It seems Sometimes to be. I feel
1: like I'm standing in the middle of the desert.
0: You know, I was going to ask you all this. One of the problems I see all the time, of course, is, um, and I had this on a previous episode, which was I, I call the doctor dilemma. And while on benzo free, I try to, you know, I, I make sure that I tell people that it's best to do this through, of course, doctor supervised to taper that try not to do it on your own. You need medical supervision. But so often I get the pushback, of course, from people who say, well, my doctor put me on this. No doctors understand this. And I'm, I've been struggling with what I tell these people because I still think it's best to do it with a doctor, even if it's a doctor who is open and you can help learn about what you're going through. It's just good to mm-hmm. have a medical professional who can help you with your taper and who can help you with your symptoms as they go along. But I do realize this is difficult for me to get this message through to some of the people who are in the middle of struggling and have had such horrible experience with these doctors. Do you find that too? And, and what do you say to patients like that?
1: yeah um it's a uh if I feel like I'm standing in a desert in, in terms of uh, uh, not having a, a lot of colleagues, you know uh, even one other colleague who does this kind of work um, imagine how people who are wanting to get off their medication right must feel it's there is a uh, Serious lack of understanding in the medical community, whether that's uh, turning a blind eye or they, they truly are ignorant to the problems associated with these drugs. Uh, I, can't, I, I can't say definitively that it's one way or the other, um, and it's probably both misinformation that comes from the pharmaceutical industry mm-hmm. around their products, um they're they're motivated by one thing and that's their bottom line mm-hmm. um and it's not about patient safety it is not about patient safety I understand um when when Xanax was first introduced uh this was after uh, the Valium the the insights that were gained about Valium in the UK and Xanax was introduced in the U.S. as being non-addictive and not as powerful. (laughs) And and we've come to learn that, in fact, it's far more powerful, far more addictive um, uh, than Valium. It binds much more tightly to the receptor than Valium does.
0: Well, Xanax, Clonopin, and Halcyon are all, what, 20 times as potent as Valium? Yes. So yeah, that's 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 heavy doses of drugs we've been taking.
1: Yeah, but you know because because Xanax could be um, prescribed at you know point one two five and point two five five, you know they're they're just tiny tiny little doses.
0: Well, it, it sounds that but way.
1: <laughs> you think about you think that you know uh, a point two five milligram tab of. Xanax is equivalent to what is that five milligrams? Five
0: milligrams, of, yeah. Of
1: Valium, that's a that's a
0: lot of drugs. That is a lot of drugs, and I know for people tapering, that becomes a huge issue because so many think. And I did this. I got down to a quarter milligram of clonopin, and I thought, okay, that's the smallest dose I can do. Now I'll just drop off. I didn't mm. think I was just suddenly dropping off of five milligrams of Valium. Yeah. Um, Let's talk. Let's move into more of the awareness and some of the activism you've been involved with. I noticed you're on the one of the medical advisors to the Benzodiazepine Information Coalition. How did you get involved with that organization?
1: They approached me and asked me if I would join them, and I said, "Sure." Um, I uh, really appreciate what this organization is doing, and um, like to, uh, you know, I think that the majority of my efforts once I finished graduate school and became licensed was to work one-on-one with people and their families and, and was no longer uh, spending a lot of time in the, in the online benzo community. I understand. Joining Vic was an opportunity to um, make a contribution to, right. in a slightly different way. If called upon. And this is this, this interview is one such
0: instance. Good. Yeah, we're so glad that you you are involved. I'm, I've been very impressed with that organization since I've been working with Benzofree, and I've been we we seem to be in line along with some other organizations of what can be done. And you know, this is going to be a, a problem that medical established along with the patients, can work together to solve. And um, mm-hmm. I admire them for taking that that stance and that moved in the right direction because I. I think we can only work within the system much better than we can fighting against it. So we we can make this change, I believe.
1: Yeah. This change to my mind, that's one person at a time.
0: I totally agree. Um, I totally agree. That's where I've, I've done things like big Ashton manual or letters to certain doctor visits. And, and I think one by one, we all can do that. And I think you're doing that too. And I think that's pretty amazing.
1: Part of my experience was coming to this, walking out of the fog and, and kind of finding my agency if you will mm-hmm. uh, it wasn't up to doctors to make decisions about my life it was up to me right and that was very free terrifying but freeing uh it was you know i'm kind of that generation that was taught that doctors know best and and so i had never really uh, I challenged it a little bit along the way, but not to the degree that I challenge it now. Right. And, and, um, really think critically about any kind of medical intervention I might be considering. That is something that I try to teach to people is that it, it, you have to, um, I think part of this, this withdrawal and recovery journey is coming to that understanding that it's your body it's your life and right. it is your decision.
0: Yeah, taking responsibility for our own health I think was one of the f- best things I've learned from this experience is that I'm in charge of my own health. And yeah. I can work with as a partner with people but but they don't tell me what to do.
1: Yep. Yeah. And n- n- there's no better boot camp for that than Bendel's.
0: <laughs> I would agree with you on that. <laughs> because <one.
1: laughs> you're alone with it. You are. It, it, it's a it's a um, it's an experience that the the uh, majority of the medical community does not recognize, right. and so you have to figure out how to get through it. And that often entails uh, uh, making changes in uh, many, if not all, domains of your life to accommodate or cope with what's happening. And that is a that is a challenge,
0: yeah. You you had mentioned about being a moderator of a support group, um, or support groups. Mm-hmm. Is that is it plural? Two different ones, or?
1: Well, uh, I guess it was plural. Um, I worked on the uh, we call it the Yahoo Benzo Support and Recovery Group. Okay. Or Benzo Withdrawal Support and Recovery Group. Um, it was the first. Online benzodiazepine withdrawal uh, community, um, founded originally founded by Geraldine Burns Mm -hmm. um, back in I think that was 1999, and uh, so that was what I that was the community that I first encountered. Right. And that group eventually closed down, and two of us started. Uh, kind of an, another group that would bridge people moving into other communities. That, that was a very short-lived, that was a short-lived group. I think that was two years.
0: Okay. Did you, um, when you were going through your own withdrawal, did you use the Ashton Manual and did you recommend that to people now?
1: Um, I did not use the Ashton Manual because I didn't know about it.
0: That's right. You went cold turkey off of <laughs> 10 milligrams. Yeah. I'm sorry. Uh,
1: yeah. I trusted that, uh, um, it's interesting a uh, uh I often share this story with people um because it was a, a profound moment of awakening for me. I think I was 2 days into withdrawal and um I can remember walking uh from my study out to the kitchen and being in a kind of a middle room where the sun was coming through the window. And uh, 13 years later, I can still remember the details oh. of that, what that looked like. Right. And, and I could see, you know, the objects that were sitting on the kitchen counter. I remember what I was wearing. I can see a dust kitty on the floor. My uh, dogs were right there. Um, there was uh, the, the rays of sunlight coming through the window. It was just an exquisitely beautiful. Bright mm. January winter day, and then just stopping in my tracks and going, Oh my god, have I been duped? Wow, saying that out loud. Yep, I was alone, and um, in that moment, really uh, uh, opening up to this idea that I'd been lied to, yeah. Felt like, or opening up to this 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 uh, profound sense of betrayal.
0: Mm-hmm. I think so many of us have noticed that same feeling in our lives at different times. Yeah. So,
1: yeah. And I think that you know that that in, that kind of institutional betrayals, which is what I call it, institutional mm-hmm. betrayal, um, sure. is is a, a very difficult thing to reconcile once you're on the other side. Yeah, you know, once you have that that uh, loss of trust in the medical community, it's hard to interact with I that understand. and and trust is going to be useful to you or helpful. Right. And sometimes we really do need doctors.
0: And we do, and <laughs> right? that's we do, and that's and the sometimes thing.
1: Sometimes we really do de- need uh, various kinds of drugs to exactly. treat, say, an infection. Though.
0: What kind of myths have you seen about benzos? I think we all kind of see those out there, but what do most people's expectations have about them, people you run into?
1: Um, they're harmless. Yeah. They're helpful. <laughs> they work, and they do. To be clear, they really, really work.
0: <laughs> well, and that's actually the problem. <laughs> if they didn't yeah. work, we exactly. we wouldn't have this exactly. issue. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean, they're, they're uh, uh, of all the psych drugs out there, they're exceedingly effective. Yeah. In the moment, in terms of calming things down and helping someone get their feet on the ground. It, it's the more insidious effects of that drug, that class of drugs that I think flies underneath our radar and, and we don't realize what's happening. I was on a benzo for darn close to 20 years. and mm-hmm. I did not know that I had a physical dependency. I did not know.
0: You and me both.
1: I thought I never thought twice about going off 10 milligrams of clonopin cold turkey. Oh my gosh. I remember saying to the doctor, "Oh, sure, no problem."
0: hmm I was going to say, what would you say to people right now who are, you know, in the middle of it, um, dependent, going through withdrawal, or you know, getting ready to? just, you know, prostrated, totally at wit's end. What do you say to them to encourage them? What do you say to them to help them keep going?
1: I think that it's so... uh, uh, One of the the biggest challenges to someone who's in the middle of this is that it's um, uh, next to them, if not impossible, to imagine things being a different way. Yeah. And so... Finding something to hang on to. Where's your, uh, where do you find your sense of hope? Mm-hmm. And if you are not able to find that, find someone who can carry that for you. Uh, I like that. Um, the reason I, I start with that idea is that this is a temporary situation even if it's been going on for years. Right. In the most unfortunate of circumstances where someone's in a protracted state going out years, I am staunchly uh, grounded in the fact that this is a temporary situation. Okay. I am unwavering in that belief.
0: Your your story alone gives a lot of hope, I think, to many people.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, uh, and I, I think also that hearing the stories of other people who've been through this, who've come out the other side, who find themselves back in their lives, does is something to hang on to. Yeah, there's a wellspring of hope to be found there. I agree. One thing that I want to add to that is that what one person experiences. Uh, is does not tell the story of what you experience. And comparing yourself to any story that you read can cause problems. Mm-hmm. Because we each go through this experience in our own unique way. And there's so many factors contributing to how we go through the experience and, 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 and how we experience it on an emotional and psychological level.
0: Yeah. Everybody's different. In this...
1: Yeah. Well, there's a lot of common threads and we can talk with each other and look to each other's stories and say, yeah, I recognize that. I know that how each person comes to this and how they go through it is going right. to be unique.
0: I, I know. I just it'd be nice if I could just reach out and show the people who are in the middle of it what it looks like on the other side, that there is the hope. There is that rainbow there is a good life on the other side and, you know, help them get through that.
1: Yeah.
0: But it's hard to do. And I know because when I was in it and I'm sure the same for you, I had very little hope myself. So, but I kept going and, you know, we got through this. So, and here we are talking today.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) I know. Great to meet you, Dee. <laughs> you too. Uh,
0: you know, and that's one of the things, too, is this podcast and um, everything is so serious. The subject is so serious. I do try to I hopefully mix a little levity in now and then. So I'd like to close out with just a few kind of light questions for you, if that's okay. Yeah, um, absolutely. These are just kind of for fun. So first off, um, clean desk or messy desk? Totally
1: messy. Messy? It's a disaster zone. Uh,
0: that's supposed to be the sign of intelligence, I think, isn't it? <laughs>
1: I don't
0: know. That's what I've heard. That's what I've heard. I'm going I'm going with that.
1: I, I call it, I don't have time to deal with it. I know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> if you had to dress off the top of your head, pick your favorite restaurant, what would it be?
1: Um, thai.
0: thai. Thai food. Thai. What would you consider your favorite city?
1: Sutton's Bay, Michigan.
0: Oh, really? Great. Mm-hmm. It's a
1: small town. Uh, Where's that the, located? and uh, it's in northern michigan in okay. uh, the little finger of michigan or what Michiganders call the little finger
0: ah is that in the up or is um, that
1: no it's in the lower in okay. the, the northern lower portion of michigan lower peninsula
0: oh good and I, I noticed in your bio that you are it says you're an artist what what discipline
1: um uh, my training is in uh, ceramics and sculpture really
0: that's fascinating how did you get into yeah.
1: that um Oh my gosh, eighth grade.
0: Oh really? <laughs> like
1: that? Just uh, in an art class, started working with clay and started doing uh, kind of abstract sculptures. And um, by the time I got out of graduate school, I was doing life-size abstract figurative work. Oh and, wow! Um, these large uh, abstract vessels uh, thrown on the wheel that were then altered.
0: That's really impressive. Did did, did the, any of that help you when you're going through your cold turkey? No. Did you, did you rely on that at all or did you not do that anymore?
1: Well, uh, uh, I have not worked and played in play in many years, mostly for physical reasons. My studio sits quietly um, and neglected out in my backyard.
0: Okay, I understand.
1: For many years.
0: That's okay. My drum set sits in the basement neglected most of the time too so i yeah. understand oh my
1: gosh I, know. I can't imagine playing the drums right now oh really <laughs> that's one of those things that still persists for me Is kind of sensitivity to
0: See, I, yeah that's when i didn't that's why it's so different like you said i didn't get that one and i actually played drums throughout it helped me my achesicia it helped me work out my oh. restlessness and it became wonderful Fantastic. therapy for me but it it just goes to prove how different each of us is in this experience. You know, that's something you couldn't have yeah. handled with your sensitivity to sounds. And it's something I was, you know, made use of.
1: I think, you know, one, one way I did use sort of the influence of, of my history and in, in working in, in the arts was relying on, um, uh, imagery. Okay. And using that to, um, kind of ignite my senses. For instance, I used to look at just photographs of, uh, like in gardening magazines. Oh, wow. And imagine myself in those environments, uh, on a sensory level.
0: That'd be very peaceful. So,
1: really making use of guided imagery was, uh, um, and I think that that is uh, is something that was developed through my experience of, of, Working in clay. I love that you were able to turn to your drums. Yeah. I just love
0: that. Yeah, it's funny. My wife would often send me. I'd be watching TV with her in the living room or something, and she'd see me jolting. Instead, she goes, "Go play your drums," <laughs> and she nudged me. Uh-huh. And she knew. It's like, okay, I'll go because <laughs> I was just so was so restless. I couldn't well, sit there. What
1: what were you tapping into? What's that? What were you tapping into? What was it that you were tapping into when you turned to your drums? So that's kind of the.
0: You know what it did? It. it I have um, an ADHD-addled brain on top of benzo, so it, it stops my brain. It calms everything down. It, it helps me become centered. When I'm playing the drums, everything else kind of stops for me. And that's that was probably the, the biggest blessing of it, was that I could just shut down the obsessive thoughts. I could shut down the anxiety. I could shut down different things. And I could just be one with the music, and it was one of the few places I could do that.
1: Oh, well, that's fantastic. Everyone who goes through this comes out the other side with having learned uh, something quite valuable mm-hmm. about themselves. And I think that those are uh, aspects, uh, part of what we can pass down to others who are going through this. Right. What is it that grounds you? What is it that ignites your spirit? What is it that allows you to, uh, apart from that, the withdrawal? be in this crazy, chaotic world. Exactly. Yeah. And so those are things that we can go back and really nurture as we go through this this uh, very extreme kind of experience. Right.
0: Well, as we close, um, is there anything else that I didn't ask or anything else you'd like to share with our listeners today?
1: Well, I will say again that this experience is temporary. Yeah. That's a very difficult thing to hang on to. And so if you're having difficulty doing that, turn to someone who can help you figure that out. Figure out what it is that's going to allow you to get through this. Mm -hmm. We are very resilient beings. And and if you can key into those those strengths and things that have allowed you to survive in other places in your life. Those are things that can be very applicable to right now.
0: Well, thank you so much. And it's been such a pleasure talking with you today, um, Liz. You too, Dee. Yeah.
1: And I, I thank you again for uh, inviting me to uh, share this hour with you today.
0: It's been my pleasure. And um, I hope yeah. you come back again and, and can talk to us again at, at a later time.
1: I'd love
0: to. Thank you so much. Okay, so that was our first interview. I I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Let me know what you think. I I really look forward to hearing your feedback. I again want to thank Liz for taking the time to share with us what she has learned from both her personal and professional experience with benzos. I really appreciate you taking the time and, and joining us on today's show. Thank you, Liz. Take care, and I hope we can talk soon. And that finally, after a lot of time, wraps up this podcast episode. Sorry this is such a long one. Before we get to our closing, I do want to sneak in our 25-second disclaimer, so here we go. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered medical advice in any way. The host of this podcast is not a medical professional, nor is he engaged in rendering medical, health, or psychological advice, nor any other kind of personal or professional services. Withdrawal, tapering, or any change in dosage of benzodiazepines, non-benzodiazepines, theanodiazepines, or any other prescription drug should only be done under the direct supervision of a licensed physician. Our full disclaimer can be viewed on our website at benzofree.org disclaimer. Our next episode is episode 11, and it will be released next Wednesday. I plan to return back to our symptom series soon. Not sure which one yet, but I'm open to suggestions, but I'm kind of hoping next episode will be the next one on the symptom series. So we'll see how that goes. Thank you again for joining me today. And please let me know how we do. Keep calm, taper slowly, and take care of yourself. I'll see you next time.